0: Morning everyone, morning, sorry, Uh, if I haven't seen you, I haven't been here on Sunday morning for a while, so if I haven't seen any of you since before December, I hope you had a good one, mine was alright, it was good, it was good, you know. Uh, Christmas-like. Anyway, the sermon. Um, so, this morning, we're looking at some, uh, some very interesting parts of, uh, of Scripture. My thanks to Jenny for reading it out. Um, the immediate question I'm sure some of you have is, what do we have here? In these seemingly almost random collection of events, Jesus' baptism, this genealogy, this family history, and then the well known story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. So, what's going on here? Well, when I was reading in preparation for this, I mostly looked at the temptation story, and so I'm going to talk about temptation uh, for a while, but actually, I'll tie it up at the end, but actually, all of these sections of this texts are connected. The question that I'll show you eventually is how so? Well, I want to propose to you, brothers and sisters, that what we have here today is Luke's answer to every single problem of every single person in the world. For what Luke is presenting to us is the Savior that we all need. The Savior that the world has been waiting for. These three stories here, it's all in there. But first, like I was going to say, let's talk about temptation. I did a, bit of work, a good bit of work reading about this, and uh, I don't mind saying that I'm leaning heavily on other people's work today. But, so if you're hearing another sermon, you're like, oh, I heard Richie said before. Uh, I picked it up somewhere else. But nonetheless, I have an uncle. Uh, he's a street preacher. There's a good chance some of you have actually seen him over the years. He's got a little microphone. and He goes around, these days mostly London, and uh, he's preaching an evangelistic message. He goes anywhere that he feels the Spirit is leading him. And he preaches. He particularly loves anywhere that people are queuing in public because he has a captive audience. Now at the start of my Christian life, I learned a lot from that man. And he mostly taught me in two ways. He would teach me by telling me stories, or he would bring me out with him, and I would learn on the, on, the, on the go. And usually, when he did tell me stories, they were connected to the street preaching as well, you know. And sure enough, one time he told me that he was out on uh, Grafton Street in Dublin, and he was, he was doing his thing, and he, nobody was listening to him. They were all walking past him. And he just happened to mention the devil, and as he mentioned the devil, this guy, this old fellow who was walking past, stopped and said, Ah, the devil, we haven't heard of him in 50 years. And my, that was a favorite story of my uncle. He told, me it, he told me it loads of times because in his view, nobody believed in the devil anymore. And in his mind, that was a big mistake because the, the devil to him was a very real experience. So not to believe in it was a big, big mistake. But the thing is, I, I think I disagree with my uncle these days. Because in my experience, the opposite is true. People love talking about this guy. I, last year at college, I did a dissertation. Um, I had to do one. And I did it on the devil. And I want to tell you two things that I learned right now from it. Firstly, um, there's been a number of surveys done over the last 20 years. And it consistently say the same thing. And that is to suggest that belief in the devil is actually higher than belief in God. Even, some of them are saying that as belief in God goes down, you get more and more people saying, yes, there is a devil. And the second thing, which is more anecdotal, but when I would tell people that I was doing a dissertation on Satan or the devil, unless, and this is also interesting, unless the person that I was talking to was a minister or a trainee minister, they were all really, really interested. So if they were a minister or they were a training minister, they are like, okay, that, yeah, that's cool. But if they weren't, they are were like, oh, really? You're doing something on the devil. Wow, I'd love to read that. Yeah. When you're finished, would you send it to us? And for whatever reason, it just really struck me, yes, there's a wide wide, 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 wide interest in this guy. Even when that interest was expressed to me in skepticism. So, you know, some people have said, well, some people said to me something along the lines of, well, I don't think he exists, you know, he's just a name for uh, what we give to the impulse that people have. He doesn't exist, he's just a, a category. But even amongst those kinds of peoples, the interest didn't wane. They all wanted to know about him, they all wanted to know what I had to say. And I suspect, however, that my minister friends who didn't have the same level of interest as everyone else might be onto to something. Because, as we're going to see today, Although he appears, it's very rarely that he's the focus of the text. In fact, and this is key, right? Whenever he's talked about, it's nearly always in reference to some other aspect of the Christian life. He's he's kind of like a setup. And this is what we see here. You'll notice in in chapter 4, right? He just appears. He gets no introduction, um, no explanation, and his existence is just taken for granted. And in a sense, really, the Bible always uses them just to get across another message. And one of those messages, today at least, is to do with temptation. This is what we see him doing here. And we see this here perhaps, I think, in a clearer than anywhere else in the Bible. So I, I, we do need to talk about it. Temptation. It's good to talk about it. But what is it? Well, This is my definition. Yeah, it's fairly simple. Temptation is the experience of being offered an alternative to what you should do. Maybe that's a bit too technical for you. So try this on for size. God has a road for you and I to follow in life. And temptation, then, is where you get a desire to take an exit off that road. You say to yourself, well, it can't hurt to go down there for a while. Sure, I can get back on what I want. I can always repent. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Don't go down that road. Don't listen to that voice. You say to yourself, ah, that looks interesting down there. So what harm is there on having a look? it will be grand. I'll only be there a while. You know, lots of things. And basically they're all uh, justifying, taking you away from where you're supposed to be going. You're supposed to stay on the M3, right? But every time you pass by the Odyssey, you give it a glance and you think, I wonder what's going on down there. So now every time you pass by the Odyssey, you just think of me talking to you about temptation, right? (laughs) There are as many ways of getting off the road as there are miles on it. And the result is that it will take your total focus to stay on the road. This ability to focus is a combination of what the Bible calls self-control and being pure in heart. Self-control, pure in heart. Let me, let me break that down for you a bit. Self-control is the ability to choose the right thing. The good over the bad. The important over the urgent. The hard in the short term but long, in the long good in the long term over the easy right now but totally not worth it later on. So then, that's self-control. But you combine self-control with being pure in heart. And being pure in heart is just another way of saying that you have a specific single aim in this life. You might remember, actually Sarah just referenced it earlier on, it was coincidental, but you might remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Remember that bit? And I used to think that meant not lusting. But now I understand it as singleness of mind. In other words, having only one thing as your goal. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that our goal should be to glorify God with everything we do. So then, to get back to the metaphor, what we need to focus on staying on the road for God that God has for us is this combination of self-control and a single solitary goal of glorifying God in all of your life. That's what's needed to combat temptation. That's what's needed for us to say no when alternative routes are presented are proposed. Let me say this as well. As I understand it, there's generally two kinds of alternative routes. Some of them are are very well signposted. We all know them. So we all know that there's various uh, sexual temptations, temptations related to anger, or money, or power, prestige, selfishness, in all its many different ways. All of those are well known. Of course, I say they're well known, but sometimes we're we're very blind to them. But nonetheless, you know what I'm talking about. Various sins that you can give a name to. But there are other ways of getting off the road that are less obvious. Unlike the more obvious ones, where you do something, you can also end up taking another route from the one that God has given you by doing nothing. Nothing. A lot of you, a lot of us, are off of God's plan for our life because we've stopped trying. You've given up on people. You've given up on trying to find God. Some of us are here, you know, we're sort of interested in what we're saying. But you've given up a long time ago on finding the answers to things that are important in life. And you know as well, there's a lot of evil in the world and part of glorifying God is our call to fight that which we come across and certainly a lot of us have given up that fight you say to yourself ah you know I'm over 40 now or I got a heap of kids now I don't have time for that is that you? are you just going with the flow? are you just paying in and doing your own thing? I want to say one more thing about temptation. It's inevitable. Sometimes Christians reckon that I'm doing something wrong if I'm being tempted. I shouldn't have these kind of thoughts. I shouldn't be feeling this pressure to go down one of these alternative routes. If I was a really, really strong Christian, if my heart was pure, I wouldn't be having all these problems and all these conflicts and all this wrestling. Actually, no, that's not right. Think about this for a second, right? Imagine yourself being so filled with the Holy Spirit, so led of the Holy Spirit, that your heart and your actions are perfectly pure. Perfectly pure. You absolutely please God with everything that you do. How do you think your life would go then? Hmm? You think, ah, yes, things would be better. There wouldn't be any conflict. There would be no temptation. And all these terrible things in my life, they wouldn't be happening to me. Well, there was somebody... Who actually did live that way? It was Jesus. But according to this reading today, he was tempted by the devil himself. Jesus was the only person we know that was consistently full of and led by the Spirit. And yet he attracted the king of darkness. That means, folks, that should you try to follow God, you should expect to be tempted. Temptation is inevitable. I mean, you you really got to come to grips with it. Now, of course, practically speaking, oftentimes where you are, your your environment, and maybe the circumstances of your life are contributing to your temptations, but they're not the only thing. Sometimes I see people making changes all the time, leaving this place or that place, because they want to be holier, but matter of fact is they're running away from the temptations they are experiencing, and maybe the best thing to do is to stay where they are and face up to them. The point I want to make to you is that you better believe if you follow God, you're going to experience temptation. In fact, let me say, if your life is comfortable, peaceful, without no temptations and without any strife, you almost certainly have gotten off the road that God has planned for you. That's what the lads in some of these Christian Christian TV stations do. They offer a kind of Christianity without pain. That's not what the Bible is talking about. Alright. After all that then, how do we become people who resist temptations and become people who are self-controlled? Do you want that? Well, how might that happen? Well, the answer is laid out in today's reading. We need someone who can show us sorry someone who can show us what is true and then someone who can inspire us to step out in faith even when it hurts and to rely on the Spirit of God to take us on the next step of the journey. That person is Jesus, as he is laid out in front of us in this section of Luke's gospel. Let me show you him. Jesus starts off his ministry with a few events that show us immediately who he is, what kind of person he is, and what he's going to do. We start off by seeing Jesus getting baptized. Now, I grew up Catholic, and there was nothing for a few years, and I was a Baptist, and now I'm a Presbyterian. Hopefully, I'll stay that way. But for most of that time, what little I thought about baptism was that it was something to do with becoming a Christian and something to do with our sins, and yet here, we have Christ himself, who is sinless, getting baptised. What's the deal? Well, Luke doesn't really say it, actually. In fact, he doesn't say it all. Jesus just gets baptised. But nonetheless, what we see is an example of Jesus taking the place, a place with sinners, as he will eventually take the place of all sinners. His baptism is just the next thing in a long line of ways, in which the only sinless man to have ever existed took the place that is fitting of a sinful man. Next, we have this wonderful picture of God opening up heaven and uh, the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, a dove, does that have any significance? Well, doves are pretty, but is that why the Spirit chose its form to be seen in? Well, try this. The last time that a dove appeared in the narrative of the Bible, it was when Noah was in the ark. Do you remember the story? And Noah sent out a dove after the rains had stopped to look for dry land, right? And it came back with an olive branch. And Noah knew the waters were receding. But after that, most people know that story, but after that he sends out the dove again and never comes back. Poor dove. This time... A dove reappears in the narrative. And so in this story, what you see is the dove is back. And once again, the dove has landed on the place where all the people of the world will find salvation. But it gets better because he's not only the place of salvation, he is, in fact, the Son of God. This, this is the main part. The Father says when he says, says this when he says to Jesus from heaven, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is God confirming to everyone that Jesus is the Son of God. So we have, right, the Son of God, who is the place of salvation and is willing to take our place and live as we live, even to the extent of being labeled a sinner. Luke, however, adds in this extra part. That is to flesh out this early section of Jesus' life. He includes his genealogy. What's the purpose of this? It's actually quite easy. Luke wants us to see that Jesus, though a Jew, is also a descendant of the man that we all come from. Luke wants us to be able to relate to Jesus. He's He's not just a Jew. He's one of all of us. His divinity is not the whole thing we need to see about him. He is human, just like you and me. How else? If he wasn't, how else could he take our place? And then we come to the part that I've kind of skirted around and talked about it then without really mentioning it at all. Jesus is tempted by the devil. (coughs) Sorry. What do we see here? Well, just as we've seen that he is human, the question must be asked. We've just seen he's human, so the question must be asked. If although he's divine, he's also a man, just like the rest of us, Can he be trusted? If he is a son of Adam, will he fail like Adam did? And so the devil tempts him. At his physically weakest point, he tempts him to break his fast. And Jesus says no. With an offer of power and prestige greater than anything else that could be offered, will he take it? All he has to do is worship the devil. He says no. And then lastly, he tempts him to test and see if God, his Father, really cares for him. But again, he resists. And in so doing, Jesus, the son of Adam, defeats the devil, the very one who defeated the original Adam. So this is someone we can trust. This is someone who knows how to win the very battle that we all lost every day. Every day we've been alive. The battle that caused all the problems in the first place. This is a saviour who the world has been waiting for. So. Is, after all that. The answer to how can we be people who are self-controlled. Is the answer to take Jesus as our example? No. No, it's not. Yes, of course, Jesus is our standard, right? But we should we attempt to merely get back on the road after you've heard this sermon, maybe, hopefully, should you attempt to get back on the road in your own strength? Should you say to yourself, right, I've taken the wrong road. I've followed the crowd. I've given up. I'm going back to following God like I'm supposed to. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be strong. Friends, if you do that, you will be crushed very soon, maybe by Wednesday. Wednesday. Some of you last till I know, some of you are likely to last a few weeks. But you'll be crushed. And more than likely, back to where you are before you started, but perhaps even more depressed than you were the last time. Because if Jesus is only your example, if all you see him is showing you a life of self-control, he won't change you. He'll crush you. For us to be changed, we've got to see him not just resisting temptation and hold him up as a model, we've got to see him resisting temptation for us. It's for you that he said no to power. It's for you that he said no to shortcutting his path to glory and no to seeing the care of his father in life. It's for you that he said no to everything that came across his path for the scriptures say that he was tempted in every way we are. It's only as we see him, defeat the very enemy that has defeated us so very often. And it's only as we see him resist that same enemy for us that we will trust him. He say, yes. He led the way. I know he can do it. I know I can trust him. And then we'll step out in faith and we'll say no to the easier option. We'll say no to doing the less important but more urgent. We'll say no to all the alternative routes We'll stay on the M3 and we'll get past, right past the Odyssey. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. It's the, it's the only way. And that's it. I'm going to sing a song now. I'm going to sing, I stand amazed in the presence.